Um, if you've got a Bible on the way in, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 12. That can be found on page 848. Looking from Mark 12, starting at verse 18. I'm just going to pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your words, and we thank you that it reveals Christ to us and teaches us how to obey him. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'll start reading from verse 18 to 27. And Sadducees came to him, him being Jesus, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So uh, I saw something strange in an art gallery recently. There's this painting from 1533 called The Ambassadors. And it's a painting of two young men leaning on some sort of table thing. And just under the table is this strange object that looks stretched and distorted. But when you look at it from just the right angle, below the painting, it turns out it's a big skull. Having skulls hidden in paintings is quite strange, but it's a motif um, known as memento mori. Memento mori means remember death. The painter would put the skull there to remind the person who looks at the painting that whatever the subject of the painting is, um, everyone dies. And the implication is everyone will die, therefore get right with God. And I think if Jesus' is pain, if Jesus is teaching sorry, was a painting, there might be a similar motif, but the implication would be about resurrection. He often points to the fact that there is a day coming when everyone who's ever lived will be raised from our graves and will be separated, some to receive eternal life and others to receive um, condemnation. Resurrection was his great encouragement to his followers. He said to them that whatever they lose now or whatever hardship they go through because they love Jesus, in the age to come they will have eternal life and rise again. But it was also a big warning to his enemies. They need to follow him, otherwise they will rise to judgment. Memento Mori says, remember death 
Jesus says, remember, there is a resurrection. In this text tonight, the teaching of the resurrection is what the Sadducees are picking Jesus up on. This section of Mark is one where people question Jesus' authority and try to undermine his teaching. If you look back at verse 13, it says, they, that is the chief priests and the authorities of the temple, said to him, uh, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So these questions after this verse are not innocent questions. They're people trying to trap Jesus in his words and to try and make him embarrassed about his teaching. They're trying to undermine Christ's authority to tell the truth. And so that's my first point tonight, the authority of Christ. Now, the the Sadducees in this passage have a particular motivation for questioning Jesus' authority. The income and the honor and all their lives are tied up with the temple system. The high priests of the temple were chosen by the Romans, but from the Sadducees, and the temple was their domain. So when Jesus arrives in chapter 11 and condemns the temple for being a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer, it's a big problem for the Sadducees. Jesus is also teaching something very different to what the Sadducees would teach the people. Jesus teaches that there will be a resurrection at the end of time where everyone rises again and where Jesus judges. The Sadducees, on the other hand, taught that there's no resurrection, that this life is it. Once you die, you die, and that is the end of body and soul. And so the Sadducees come up with a a little dilemma to try and disprove Jesus' teaching on this uh, topic. They base the argument on scripture, the law known as the Leveret Marriage Law, found in Deuteronomy 25, where one marries the wife of the deceased brother. They say, uh, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. But here's the problem. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. The idea behind this question is that if the dead rise again, or if there is an afterlife, that's a problem. Because in a case like this, this woman has been married to multiple men. But the law says marriage is between one man and one woman. So when all the dead rise again, whose wife will she actually be? And the first thing Jesus tells them is in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So even though they use scripture as an argument, Jesus tells them that they're not disagreeing because they're holding to scripture too tightly. It's actually because they don't know scripture well enough. Jesus says elsewhere in the book of John that the scriptures bear witness to him. If the Sadducees had been reading their Old Testament properly, they would have acknowledged Jesus' authority and they would have listened to his teaching. 
There's a wider point here that the litmus test of whether you truly know Scripture is in how you respond to Jesus himself and his teaching. The one who knows Scripture submits to Jesus' authority and wholeheartedly wants to obey him. And that true knowledge itself is a gift from God because it's the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts to reveal Christ to us through the Bible. It's only because of the Holy Spirit that anyone can read the Bible and come to the right conclusion that Jesus is our King and Saviour. This passage also spurs us on to pay careful attention to the Scriptures in case we end up dead wrong like the Sadducees. There was one preacher that said 100% of our theological problems come from not knowing the Scriptures well enough. It was certainly true of the Sadducees. They knew Scripture well enough to back up their own arguments, but they didn't know them well enough to acknowledge Jesus and to recognize him. Knowing the Scriptures and carefully paying attention to them helps us to see Christ all the more clearly. There's lots of people who say things like, my Jesus is like this, or my Jesus is like that. But the real Jesus is the one of the Bible, and therefore to know him, we need to pay careful attention to the whole Bible. So Jesus rebukes the Sadducees on Scripture, but he also rebukes their understanding of the power of God. Now, the, I mentioned earlier the Sadducees didn't accept the Bible's teaching on the resurrection, but that means that their version of God is very different to what God is actually like. For the Sadducees, God is not very involved in things. There's no life after death. There's no heaven. There's no hell. God's not going to have this day of judgment where he judges the world. There's life now, and that's it. And when it's done, it's done. But Jesus corrects them, saying in verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So here Jesus proves the resurrection through scripture. Although we may raise our eyebrows at Jesus's choice of scripture. When I was thinking myself about how I might prove to someone that the Old Testament scriptures teach the resurrection, I didn't immediately go to Exodus. I maybe thought of Daniel 12.2, for example, that says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. As very explicitly a resurrection passage. But Jesus is doing something very smart here, much smarter than what I could do. The Sadducees placed a special emphasis on the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah compared to the Old Testament. So if, if Daniel 12 says there's a resurrection, they may respond with, well, we're not sure about Daniel. But if Moses says it, then there's no argument. So what Jesus draws their attention to is Exodus 3, where long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died, God still says, I am the God of Abraham, rather than I was. God is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they are still alive 
as what the passage says. They have a, a spiritual afterlife. When they died, the screen didn't go black, but they consciously, spiritually remained in the presence of God. And that's not really a surprise since God is the God of life. He created life and he supports life and he will give eternal life to those who believe in him. As well as that, God has life in and of himself. He didn't need anyone to create him. He doesn't live a dependent existence. He has always been and always will be. There's nothing else like God in that way. There's nothing else that has always just existed. Nothing else that has the power to have life in and of itself. But God is that power. Is that, sorry, is that powerful? So powerful he didn't need anyone to make him or empower him. He just has it. And so Jesus says, is it really beyond the capabilities and power of that God to raise people from the dead? Jesus is saying, God is the God of life. Even the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive because God has kept their immortal souls alive before him. Therefore, of course, there will be a final resurrection from the dead. The book of Hebrews, a bit later on in the New Testament, shows that even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew that they would live again. Hebrews 11 says, These all, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They were content to live uh, by faith, not having seen the fulfillment of God's promise to them, because God had promised that they would become a great people, and that through one of their descendants, the world would be blessed. And they hadn't seen that fulfillment in their lifetime, but they were content because they knew that they would still live in God's heavenly city, and therefore they would see it. It says that they were content to live like strangers in the land because their real home was heaven. So the Sadducees didn't know scripture well enough to know that God had plans for resurrection and eternal life even from the beginning. And they also didn't recognize Jesus, who is the fulfillment of those plans. So this passage teaches us to know what Scripture really says about God. It teaches us to be subject to Christ's authority by listening to what he teaches. And in our situations, that can be a real challenge to stick with Christ's teaching. Imagine it was difficult to have been a disciple of Jesus during this episode, to, to watch their master be opposed from all sides, from all the popular teachers of the day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't fringe groups, but they were, they were popular, and people believed them. It's a bit like that politics TV show uh, called Question Time, where there's a bunch of people on the panel and a bunch of people in the audience, and the people on the panel debate each other, and the audience questions them. It's a bit like that episode, an episode of Question Time, but Jesus is the person on the panel that receives the most heat, and everyone else on the panel doesn't like him. The Pharisees on the panel don't like him. The Sadducees don't like him. The scribes were against him. 
And Jesus is still very much opposed today. There are people who say that Jesus is wrong about the resurrection, that there's no God and that this is the only life we have. That's certainly the dominant message in Scotland today. Others say that Jesus is not the only way to heaven and that's offensive to say otherwise. Others find it insulting for us to say that no one can ever earn their way to heaven, although that is what Jesus teaches. But the difference is, Jesus' teaching has the divine stamp of approval on it. God approves of it. And we will take similar opposition to Jesus if we hold tightly to his teaching. We read Acts 4 this evening on purpose because in that passage, Jesus' disciples, John and Peter, take the same opposition from the same people, the Sadducees, for the same reason as Jesus, because they're teaching the resurrection. And it was painful for them. In the book of Acts, the Sadducees offer some of the most violent persecution of the disciples. But just like them, we need to stick with the scriptures, with what Jesus teaches, even when it's painful, even when others oppose us. The cost might be being left out of things or being less popular than it might have otherwise been. Sometimes it may even look like your own family rejecting you or friendships breaking or receiving online abuse. And Jesus sees all that and he knows. But we have to stick with Jesus because he has the authority and the truthfulness to tell us what happens when we die. So we stick with Jesus because of his authority and we stick with him because of the reality of the resurrection. That's my second point tonight. The reality of the resurrection. The resurrection and the final judgment, as I mentioned earlier, rather than being side issues for Jesus, are very important. They're a priority for him. You might notice in this passage, Jesus says twice to the Sadducees, you're wrong. The second time in verse 27, he forcefully says, you're quite wrong. They are completely off track of the truth because they don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees say no one is resurrected, no one is judged, death is the end. But we saw earlier in Mark 8 that Jesus says, whoever would, lo- whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What, for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus clearly teaches resurrection there, doesn't he? he how can someone lose their life for the gospel's sake and therefore save it? if there's no resurrection. You cannot have Christianity without the resurrection, without the resurrection of Jesus and without the final resurrection of everyone at the end. It's not Christianity otherwise. Because all through his teaching, Jesus insists that the resurrection is real and going to happen. And he also teaches us that there's two big implications of this. There's judgment for Christ's enemies and life for Christ's people. Jesus said, 
chapter 8:38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father. The final resurrection here is one where Jesus will separate those who followed him and those who didn't. It would be a terrible thing to happen to be one of those people on that day that Jesus declares guilty and is ashamed of because there's no coming back from that and the consequences are eternal. There's no appeal court after Jesus. His judgment is right and it can't be undone. Because Jesus' judgment is right, that's not good for the Sadducees here. They're the group that run the temple and they've they've seen in chapter 11 that Jesus has judged the temple and found it lacking. He's already shown them that he does not approve of what they're doing. And in this passage, he's shown that he does not approve of what they believe. They're off track. They're wrong. And if Jesus' teaching on the resurrection is true, then they're in for eternal judgment if they don't change. But for the Sadducees, it's more convenient for them to oppose Jesus and to try and undermine him publicly rather than listening to him. And I think that's similar today. Believing in the, in the eternal consequences of Jesus is not popular now. They are inconvenient. For many people, the gospel is quite attractive, but it would change too much of their life. It can also be a challenge to share the truth of the resurrection and the judgment with other people. What one of my friends from uni once asked me, Dan, if you really believe in the judgment and hell and that people who don't accept Jesus are going to be judged, why don't you talk about it all the time? I, I thought it was slightly harsh because I don't think he'd really ever listened to me when I talked about Jesus before, but it is a helpful reminder. Sometimes what really draws people to accepting the gospel is not only the great promise of heaven, but also the, the realization that Jesus is coming back to judge. It's part of the good news that this life is not the end and that Jesus knows perfectly what is right and what is an appropriate judgment to make on everyone. But Jesus makes a, an offer to anyone who doesn't, know, doesn't yet know him that that resurrection judgment doesn't have to be our future. Instead, he offers eternal life. This is the other implication of the resurrection, life for Christ's people. If you're one of Christ's people, Jesus assures you that you have nothing to fear from the resurrection because you've been pronounced innocent already. Jesus has taken your sins and, um, and dealt with the punishment that was due. And that means that, G- that Jesus will give you the free gift of eternal peace, healing, joy, glory, in body and soul in the new creation. Look at how Jesus answers their, their point about marriage in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. When Jesus says that the raised dead aren't married but are like angels, it's not so much a comment on um, how angels conduct themselves romantically, but instead it's, he's saying that this resurrected life is a new transformed life that is different to our life now. We're not like the angels now, but in the resurrection we will be in some way. We won't be them, but we will be like them in a way.
Perhaps it's because the angels see the visible glory of God. And so will God's people when we rise again. We see God's glory now through scripture and, uh, and creation. But when we rise again, we will see God's unmediated, unfiltered glory. In terms of marriage, when the resurrection and the new creation come about, there will be no need for the woman in the question to be married to any of the seven brothers because marriage will have completed its purpose. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is an image of Christ and the church. So when the church is finally, eternally, joyfully with Christ in the new creation, there won't be any need for marriage. The shadow of marriage will be superseded by the substance and reality of the new creation. Just like how there's no need for a sign or a sat-nav when you're already in the destination, there's no need for marriage in the new creation. Now, I imagine some people might be thinking, I quite like my marriage, and I don't want us to be torn away from each other in heaven, but I want to assure you that you'll experience no loss of love and no loss of quality of relationship in heaven. Far from it. The quality and closeness of relationship we have with our spouse now is nothing compared to how amazing our uh, unity will be in, in heaven. It will be different in heaven, but no less special, and it will be perfected. There's not going to be any sin in heaven to tear people apart, no sin to so mistrust or strife in our relationships. No death or dread, no, sorry, no death to dread or grief to expect. There'll be no opposition or persecution or suffering or trial in any way. And we will all have a perfect unity with each other and a perfect unity with Jesus that will be better than even the most perfect earthly marriage. So not being married in heaven will not be a loss, but a replacement of the shadow with the substance, a replacement of the model with the real thing. Like angels, we will see the visible glory of God forever and ever. Our enjoyment of God in heaven will be such that after a billion years of being there, we will be just as joyful and excited as we were in the first 10 seconds. One writer says that heaven is a place where sorrow does not live, and joy cannot die. For those who listen to Jesus, despite the opposition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's the glorious reward. A resurrected body, an eternal life, and a new creation. That's something that can spur us on too, to listen to Jesus. Many people oppose Jesus now, and therefore will oppose us when we stick with him and when we listen to him. But when he comes again to raise us and give us life, we will experience a joy that will never end. Any loss of reputation or friendships or jobs or any comforts now for the sake of Christ, within one second of being in heaven, it will be worth it. So in this text tonight, we see that if you understand scriptures and you understand God's power, you will listen to Jesus and to his teaching. He's an authority worth submitting to, a teacher worth sticking with, even when the opposition is painful. He has authority over life and death, and he will resurrect everyone who's ever existed on the last day, and he'll judge rightly, 
and he will grant eternal life to anyone who would come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of life. We thank you that you've given us life and we thank you for the promise of eternal life to come. We pray that you would help us to know scripture and therefore know Christ. We pray that you would comfort and encourage us through opposition that we face. We pray that you'd help us to be urgent with the the gospel in both the promise and the warning. And we, we pray that you would keep our eyes fixed above. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll let Paul come up and...